book of Acts, chapter 2, and as I'm flipping here, or as uh, you're flipping open to that, uh, if you are not picking these up, uh, the little communion uh, as you come in, we encourage you to do so, uh, but if you are planning to take communion with us uh, after the teaching moment, uh, then you can indicate now, Tayshon's going to walk around and just pass out to anybody who doesn't have one, who would like to have one, uh, but it's on the table as you come in. We're in a series that we started last week, going through the book of Acts. And in this series, we are examining not just a book of the Bible, but a movement throughout history known as the church. What we're doing here, what we're doing now, is connected to, as we said last week, connected to the life and ministry of Jesus, that Acts starts out in chapter one and verses one through three in the intro saying that in the last book, Luke, the author of Acts, profiled everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And he's connecting that forward into Acts because he's saying, hey, everything that Jesus began to do and teach, which was we looked at last week extensively, was all about bringing his kingdom into this earth and into this reality so that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humanity, which were separated at the fall, would become realigned. But he says, I'm going to continue doing that, and I'm doing it now through you, through us in this room, connected back to the disciples that are praying in a room and the Spirit falls upon them 2,000 years ago. And as we mentioned last week, or I guess I don't recall now exactly if I mentioned it last week, but as we're going to be focusing on this week, we are called to be a part of God's work of bringing the kingdom into earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus doesn't just leave us to do this with just a sense of, hey, you go and now figure this out. He doesn't say to the disciples or the apostles, hey, you go and strategize and plan and become efficient and figure out how to bring my kingdom in. Rather, he says, no, I want you to wait because I'm going to send you my spirit. We did a whole series on the Holy Spirit over the spring and summer. And so there's a lot more that we can talk about. We did about 10 weeks on what the Holy Spirit is to us. And so if there's, this is going to be lacking towards that level of depth. And so if you're here and you were not privy to that series, I recommend you go back and check that out on the podcast because there's a lot that we're not be able to get to about the Holy Spirit in this text. But one thing that I want to reemphasize, and this is, from the previous series that we did, but I feel like the Spirit has brought it up again in Acts chapter 2, that we need to be a people that recognizes what the Spirit is and how we relate to the Holy Spirit. Because frankly, as a culture, we're really terrible with the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of reasons probably why. We don't really know what's going on with the Holy Spirit. There's not a lot of ample teaching about how the Holy Spirit interacts with Christians and the Bible. I mean, there's some, but just not a ton in our culture. Or we see a lot of bad examples of it. We see a lot of people like abusing the Holy Spirit, and so the Holy Spirit just becomes, becomes equated with a group of televangelists that do really dramatic and, and theatrical kinds of ministry that doesn't necessarily seem like it has the presence and qualities of Jesus' life in it. But I think maybe even more so the reason that we are terrible with the Holy Spirit as a culture is because as a culture we're just kind of used to getting on without the Spirit. We're kind of used to figuring it out. I'll get a group of people. I'll get my resources. I'll make a budget. I'll make a plan. 
I'll become, I'll remove inefficiencies. And I will become able to enact whatever it is God is calling me to do or that I need to figure out. Simultaneously, we have a culture that is burning out like never before. Because maybe when Jesus came and said, hey, you can't do anything outside of the Spirit. He wasn't saying it in a way of like, you can't build a business or you can't figure out a movement. But he was saying it in the sense of, you can't do anything that lasts. You can get a lot of energy and a lot of noise and hubbub going in a certain direction. But like a a sandcastle at tide, it's only there for a little bit. And then all of that energy feels wasted. But instead, God says, hey, to the church who I'm now calling to take on my kingdom, I want you to wait for the Spirit. Because when it falls upon you, it's something that you can't control. You can't strategize it. You can't efficiency out. You can merely give up control and wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Uh, some people got that. Uh, and the point that is coming out of this is that if we don't understand how Jesus related to the Spirit, we probably won't get a good picture of how we're supposed to relate to the Spirit. And so, let's go, I know we flipped to Acts, but actually hold your place at Acts chapter 2 and flip back to Luke chapters 3 and 4. As I mentioned, Luke is the author of Acts, and the book of Acts and the book of Luke are highly connected. They actually, you can actually almost lay them on top of each other, and they have reciprocal stories and reciprocal movements to one another. Because one of Luke's big purposes in writing these two together is this, that Jesus' life and his way that he comes in to bring his kingdom is the same way that the church is then going to take it forward in the book of Acts. And so as you see in the uh, book of Luke, throughout it, you will notice one thing about uh, the account of Luke in the gospel as opposed to the other three accounts. The book of Luke is uniquely filled with the term in the spirit. It's constantly saying Jesus did this in the Spirit. He went here in the Spirit. He spoke in the Spirit. Because Luke is trying to then communicate a reality that is going to happen later in the church in the book of Acts. But let's look first here. Luke chapter 3. Where am I wanting to go? Ah. Never mind, I'm going to go Luke. Chapter 4. Ah, no, no, I wasn't chapter 3. Sorry. There we go. Chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. In the baptism of Jesus, all the accounts that mark it are clear to say, this is the moment the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. Translation. Before this moment, the Holy Spirit has not descended upon Jesus. There's a reason that Jesus doesn't enter into the scene and begin his ministry as a small child. Because he does not have the Holy Spirit until this moment. 
but then it falls upon him, and immediately he goes in to be tempted. And then you'll see in chapter 4, right after his falling of the Spirit, the temptation in the wilderness, it's G, uh, verse 14, Jesus begins his ministry, is the title over mine. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Let's keep going. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has the Spirit fall upon him at his baptism, and then he begins his ministry, as it says, he returns to Galilee in the Spirit. And then he reads out, he says, hey, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. To do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, to be the prophet. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are all the things that Jesus is going to do through the rest of the book of Luke. Here's the thing that you can't miss that we often do. Jesus doesn't do this because he's Jesus. He's doing these things, why? Because he has the Spirit's presence upon him. We think sometimes that the Spirit is, or sorry, let's say this this way. We think sometimes that Jesus is able to heal, he's able to prophesy, he's able to do all these things because in some way he has a different DNA than we do. That somehow it's like, well, of course, he's God in the flesh. And yes, that's true, but this is what Paul's talking about. We went through the book of Philippians earlier this year, and this is what he's talking about in chapter 2, and he says that Jesus emptied himself of his God, of his God qualities. It's not that he gave up being God. He was still fully God. But yet he emptied himself of his power. He no longer is this omniscient being that is able to heal and do all things by, by just a flick of his wrist or a snap of his finger like some people conceptualize of Jesus. Rather... He waits, and God gives him the Spirit, and as the Spirit falls upon him, he is able to do all that we read about in the Gospels and much more. And the big implication of that is that when the Spirit falls upon us, we have no resource less than what Jesus has. That Jesus said, hey, wait for the Spirit because you are going to do far greater things than I. There's a lot of debate about what that means and what he was referring to. Let me just tell you one thing it doesn't mean. You're going to do far less things than I. Let's look back at Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read this through... Let's read through 21. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested 
on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall uh, come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in this account, the Spirit falls during the festival of Pentecost, which was a very symbolic day for this to happen that maybe we don't recognize because we think of the day of Pentecost as the day that the Spirit came, but they already had a festival surrounding it. It was already a day of magnitude to them. The day of Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. It was a harvest festival. It was seven weeks after Passover. And if you know much about Scripture and the numerology of Scripture, seven is the most complete version of a number that there is. There's the seven days that God creates the world, sevens all throughout. And so if you have a seven, and you have seven sevens, which seven weeks is seven sevens, then on that 50th day, which is Penta 50, you have a celebration. And the celebration was, in many ways, gratefulness for the first fruits of the grain harvest. That This was about the time that in May, this is when grain starts to pop up, and it is thanking God for the first fruits of the grain and bringing them and bringing them as sacrifices, saying, "God, we give you our first fruits, not necessarily knowing that there will be second fruits, but knowing that you have taken care of us, you provided us these, and you will provide us much more." So they came, they would sacrifice grain, and then they would have a giant feast. It's not completely unsimilar to Thanksgiving for us. There was even more loaded into Pentecost. Because Pentecost is also became connected with, if you remember the story of Exodus, after Israel is led out of Egypt, after the ten plagues and the Passover, they go around for about seven weeks, and then they end up back at Mount Sinai. And when we think of the moment of Mount Sinai, we think of the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law. 
But here's what the Israelites thought of. They thought of God committing his covenant presence to them. That's ultimately what the Ten Commandments and the law were. To give a law to a people was to say, this is my covenant to you, I'm going to be present to you, and here's how you know, because here is my teaching, here is my wisdom. You can now come into my presence and you can see me as a good king. You know I'm a good king? Well, here's the kind of wisdom that I purport as a, as a good king. But don't miss the bigger thing that was going on. They were saying, I am now covenanting to you. It was a wedding ceremony, the moment at Sinai, of God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I covenant to that fact. And so in the day of Pentecost, they began recognizing this is not just God's provision of grain, but it's also his regular reminder that he is with us. His presence is protecting us and going before us. And so then in the day of Pentecost, you have, in a lot of ways, a replaying of so many of the scriptural stories, but Sinai is definitely not left out. You see this again, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So that sudden sound is meant to be reflective of Exodus 19, when there's a blast of trumpets at Mount Sinai, or what they say is like a blast of trumpets, because it probably wasn't trumpets, but they just had to liken it to that, because there was something, while Moses goes up on the mountain and is covenanting with God, that there's a blast of some, of some sound. Also, the wind is referring to the fact that like, when God is presence descends on Mount Sinai, there's fire, there's wind, there's storm, there's all these things that are freaking the people out, and so it's much a, a replaying of the Sinai story. And then, of course, the tongues of fire that appear before them. Not only is God's presence at Sinai marked out by fire and wind and all the smoke and everything that's going on, but all throughout Scripture, you will regularly see the presence of God is marked by fire, a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke or uh, the burning bush or constantly throughout time and time again, where you see fire in the temple, where you see lit candles, the room note, this is the presence of God. And so, tongues of fire fall upon the disciples or the apostles at this point, and then they go out and they begin proclaiming the truth of the kingdom of God to a group of Jews. And Jews are, because this is Pentecost, Jews from all over the known world. I mean, everywhere that the Jews had traveled around, there had been those who had peeled off or had uh, been sent out in the exile and not returned. So Jews are living all over the known earth at this point. But during Pentecost, upwards of a half a million to a million of them would all pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate God's presence with them, the covenant at Sinai, and the first fruits given to them. And so these people are all over the known earth, and then all of a sudden, God brings them together, and the languages begin to unravel that they can all hear in their native language. And then you begin to ask yourself, is there a story in which all people are together and something funny begins to happen with their languages? And it takes you back to the, the moment of the Tower of Babel, where the reverse happens. All people are together, but they say, hey, in our unity, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a city for ourselves. Let us run ahead of God because we can control this. We can get our plan together. We can get our budget together. We can remove inefficiencies. And we can be in control. 
And God looks at that and says, yes, they can do a lot. They can do a lot without my presence, but it's not going to go the way that they thought. So he scrambles their languages. He spreads them out over the earth. And now on the other side of that book end, you have him bringing all people. If you look through the, um, the 15 nationalities or, or places where the Jews were from in the, in the book of Acts here in chapter 2, which is interesting because we remember these scrolls took thousands of dollars to make. Space economy on the scroll was a big deal. So the fact that Luke intentionally takes the space and time to list out 15 different places where they're from means that he is trying to drive home the idea, A, that God is being faithful to his promise that he will become a blessing to all people in all nations through the tribe of Israel. But also this, this these 15 areas, if you map them out, they represent all the areas covered by the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10 leading into the Tower of Babel story. It's a reminder that God is reversing what happened at Babel to say, I am bringing you all together, and now and when you try to build your kingdom and that had to push you apart, I am now bringing you all together to build my kingdom because now my spirit is here. And so again, you constantly, I mean, there's even more stories. You see the wind, which harkens back to Ezekiel when he sees all the dead bones and the wind comes in and, and rises them again into new flesh through the Spirit. When you see the people, the disciples being confused as drunk, it harkens back to when Hannah in the book of Samuel is praying in the Spirit and thought to be drunk. But instead, no, it says this is actually a woman who is being faithful to God and my spirit is upon her offspring. All the biblical stories are crashing into each other in this moment because it's making the point that this is the moment when God's empowering presence, which was upon Jesus to do all that he did, is now falling upon us. Here's the issue that we have. We tend to wrestle with the Spirit being upon us because we say to ourselves, I don't see all that big stuff happening in my life. If I'm supposed to be able to do all the works of Jesus, I don't anticipate healing anybody this year. I don't anticipate being able to speak and have people from every nationality understand what I'm saying. And so we often get afraid to lean into the Spirit because we can't control it. There's no program we can do. There's no life betterment plan you can put in, in for 2021 to allow the Spirit to fall upon you. Here's what you can do. You can wait for it. Now, I want to address the idea of this, the big stuff happening, and will that happen in all, each and every one of our lives? And if it doesn't, what does that mean about who I am? Two things. One, talk to any missionary that has spent significant time in places outside of America, and they will tell you, you get outside of America, and crazy stuff happens. 
because again, we live in a culture that is used to figuring it out and controlling things. And so it's not surprising that God's Spirit says, if you're going to control it, then you don't need me. I mean, you even see that happened to Jesus, that in Jesus' life, he says that in his own hometown, people just didn't assume that he could do anything, and so he doesn't. Why? Because he doesn't control it. He merely waits for the presence of God to move. And when it's not moving, because people don't believe in that, then he goes on somewhere else. And so you've talked to just people. I mean, I've talked with missionaries. I remember a story that one, someone told me about a person uh, in a shanty shacked uh, village who becomes uh, convinced that Jesus is the, the Savior of the world and the kingdom of God is coming. And then they go and they visit him like weeks later and he, they show the missionaries, uh, he shows them all these notebooks that he had been writing about, just thoughts about scripture in the weeks since they had had conversations and, and had kind of the moments of conversion till then. And they said they opened up pages and pages and pages of profound understanding of Scripture. Because the Spirit fell upon him and the gift of teaching and prophecy was on him. And that's a small story, but you can hear tons of them if you get out of our culture that has a sense of the spirit can't move and we have to control everything for ourselves. But here's the other reality too. Even in those cultures, that is not the norm of how the spirit is typically working. Those are stories for a reason because they are phenomenal. But if you look through the, old, or the rest of the New Testament, when Paul's instructing the church of how to be filled with the spirit, he talks about them, uh, things about, hey, live a life in community with one another. Giving one another. Speaking truth into one another's lives. Sacrificing generously for one another. As you do this, the Spirit is amongst you. I mean, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those, as we've noted before, are spoken in the plural. We don't have a plural concept of a plural you in English, but you understand it, those who have studied any language whatsoever, that the fruit of the Spirit is plural. It is love in a plural sense, a love amongst brothers and sisters. It is joy in a plural sense. It's not about you just feeling joy individually. It's about you feeling joy in the midst of a community that represents the joy of Christ. It's about peace, not that you feel internal peace, but that you are at peace with your brothers and sisters even though you have great differences in sin continuing to be worked out in you. And that all of the fruits of the Spirit are a sense and are assuming that you are working them out in a community of people. So part of the reason that we don't sense the Spirit it's because we're becoming more and more isolated. And we have a sense where, like, we're in community, but we don't actually let the iron sharpen iron, or we don't commit to one another deep enough to actually let our vulnerability and our sin out so that we can be a people that are forgiving one another, are speaking prophetically into each other's lives, are being generous. Now, I will say... I see these kind of things happening all throughout this church. I see tons of you 
who are living deep in community, who are attempting to speak prophetically into people's lives. And it's not like I'm, oh, I just woke up with this dream vision that I had. Maybe some days that's true, but a lot of times it's just like, man, I was reading this and I'm listening to you and I just want to encourage you in this. Or somebody is confessing sin to you and you restore them in the gospel. Or someone is just talking about their life and you say, hey, I feel like I have to call you out on this. I don't want to, but I feel like I have to. Or I see you generously sacrificing your time and your money and your resources for one another. And when that starts happening, people's life actual, lives actually start beginning become transformed. Transformation is always happening in community when people who are so self-giving towards one another that all of a sudden, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we begin to be in a community where we cannot just know the truths of Scripture, but we can experience them in community. We can experience the love of God for us through each other. And then when that begins to happen, you start to see a community that grows in love for one another, grows in generosity for one another, grows in Christ-likeness with one another. That is the spirit I'm seeing in our community. And that's what we're asking to happen more and more. Not that we figure out some way to programmatize that, but rather we continue day in, day out, week in, week out, to be in each other's lives, to be in community with one another, and to wait for the Spirit to fall. And over, I mean, so much of what I've seen the Spirit work out in my life and the lives of other people, I didn't know it was happening at the time. It's rather I look back retrospectively and I see all of a sudden markings of the Spirit's presence all over us. I see my life transforming. I see me actually being able to let go of anger and hatred I've had in my heart since I was, I don't know, since I can remember. I see myself actually starting to work out of sin patterns. Why? Not because I'm just mustering up all the willpower I can, but rather because people have been loving me and walking along with me long enough that I'm able to untangle the shame that is underneath all of them. And all of a sudden, the Spirit begins to transform our lives, and we look back and we see what He's been doing the entire time. And yes, every once in a while, one of us is going to say, I just feel like I have something that is a stark prophetic word from the Lord. And a lot of times, we're just going to speak truth into our lives week in, week out, give generously to each other week in and week out, and the Spirit is going to fall. That's what it looks like to build the kingdom of God through the Spirit in our lives. That's what it looks like when the Spirit falls out on us as a community. We can't control it. We can't programatize it. We can't budget it out and figure out all the inefficiencies, though many of that can be wise and good things to do. But as we're doing that, we can simply ask God to move and to wait for his presence to be in with us. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for 
I pray for us as a community to be encouraged about how we see your presence and your spirit moving throughout us, empowering us to be a part of people's lives transforming, be a part of our own lives transforming. Lord, I pray for those of us who feel like we sense no experience of the spirit to either be given eyes to see and ears to hear or conviction of heart to say, maybe the spirit is not present because we are doing all that we can to control our lives without need of the Spirit? Or we have no communion with you to begin with, and therefore the Spirit is not upon us. But Lord, wherever we find ourselves today, the good news is that you are inviting us into your presence now. Not because of our righteousness and holiness, but because of Jesus's. And in Jesus' righteousness and holiness, we stand as sons and daughters in your presence. And as we wait for you to fall upon us and move powerfully through us, we slowly and surely become in your image those who do far greater works than even you. Lord, I pray for that to be true of our church and for us to grow in that day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. In Jesus' name, amen.